Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I am your host, Alex Hull, and in this month's episode, I'm joined by Amy Budd to discuss the video work of Onyeka Igwe and Francis Worrell Campbell, who has written a feature titled The Pandemic Will Not Be Televised. Both of these articles are in our current issue of the magazine, which is our September issue, and I highly recommend that you grab yourself a copy from our website, www artmonthly.co.uk. This episode has been recorded remotely. I'd like to welcome my first guest onto the Art Monthly talk show. It is Amy Budd. Amy is the curator of projects and exhibitions at Modern Art Oxford and is here to talk with me about her profile of Onyeka Igwe, a London-based artist, filmmaker and researcher. Thank you for joining me today, Amy. Thank you. Um, Perhaps Perhaps you could start with a little introduction to Onyeka Igwe and her practice, and it would also be great to hear a little bit about how you first encountered her work. Sure. Um, so as you said, Onyeka is a London-based artist and filmmaker, and uh, she's someone I've been following for a long time. I included her one of her earlier works, Her Name in My Mouth, in a film screening uh, in Nottingham a few years ago now. Um, so that's when I first saw her work. Uh, and she's since been screened at Lux. Uh, this trilogy, No Dance, No Palaver, has been screened extensively and at Jerwood. And she won the um, Barrick New Cinema Award last year for one of the films I talk about. Um, and she's, for me, she's very striking as an artist who um, is dealing, grappling really with um, quite complex histories within a more imaginative visual language and then using lots of different artistic forms to really um, interrogate the politics around colonialism from a particularly well, an incredibly personal point of view. And I, I, I guess, you know, looking at emerging filmmakers, I was struck by the kind of quite sophisticated way she addresses these ideas. So um, having followed her for a long time and being quite excited by the scale of production, you know, as an artist progresses, she, she kind of works more kind of independently and has more recently been working with crews and shooting on location. I've been quite interested to see the progression of these ideas and how she's developed them for different projects. So she was someone that I felt um, deserved a wider audience, really, and more mm. substantial writing about her work. Yeah, you open um, the profile um, quoting the artist, sort of stating that her re- relationship to the archive is a very complicated one. Um, could you perhaps talk about why this is and how these tensions are felt within her films? Certainly. So um, that quote is from a brilliant interview uh, Onyeka had with Sonia Dyer. Um, and I should also say Onyeka is an incredibly um, rich speaker about her work. She has real insight into her practice. Uh, she's, she's just completed a PhD, which I think obviously informs a lot of her work. So when I was writing this, there was a huge amount of material from her very personal point of view to uh, kind of consider and research. Um, And I guess I was intrigued by her kind of very honest and subjective approach to talking about the archive. And that really does inflect the films that she makes. Her complicated relationship to the archive is one which is, you know, both kind of repelled and enthralled by it. It's that, and I, I guess maybe that's something that 
I don't particularly relate to from in terms of the colonial context and looking for your heritage within these institutions. But I spent, as a researcher and curator, I've spent a lot of time in archives and I totally identified with that total fascination with discovery and feeling moments of recognition in the material you're looking at, but also being really faced with a lot of the complicated politics that surround the institutions that you're working in and also often the material that you're handling. So that I was really, I wanted to open with that because she's kind of calling it out from the beginning. She's kind of calling out her own conflict that she experiences um, by exploring her own heritage in this way and by, you know, using the colonial imagery, I think. So her complicated, her, her, yeah, her complicated relationship is one of, of wanting to align herself kind of with this material or feeling a sense of place within it, but also having to deal with the, um, you know, the kind of the, the traumas of colonialism that is felt throughout her own family, her own kind of the, the diasporic history of a family of, of her family and how she's come to um, kind of encounter this material as well. Mm. Yeah, you also talk about how um, uh, she uses this methodology of critical proximity when she's sort of encountering this archival material. Um, could you perhaps sort of explain um, for our listeners what this uh, methodology of critical proximity is and how it sort of operates within her um, research practice. Yeah, absolutely. So this is kind of her own methodology that she has arrived at herself through reading various other um, theorists. I think she cites Donna Haraway as one. There's a few lectures that she gives where she really positions this very clearly. But critical proximity is a way for her to kind of... um, to do with the reproduction of the images in her films, how can she work with this material without reproducing the traumas within them? And so she adopts this mode of critical proximity where she identifies herself as being with the people within the Igbo ancestors on the films um, to embody the footage, to have experience of embodiment with, but whilst also occupies this kind of critical framework of thinking about where this... um, colonial film unit um, kind of propaganda machine was operating as a way to explore it critically, but without reproducing the traumas, I suppose. And so for me, this method or kind of idea of critical proximity is realised through both reproducing the images, but also using other filmic tendencies like sound, um, sound design by um, thinking about gestures and dance a lot. So those moments in particular, I think, best articulate that. But she's, you know, filming her own body responding to this footage and that kind of encapsulates this critical proximity of thinking about this history in particular, I think. I mean, yeah, but I, from what I understand, that's, that's, what it, that's what it means. That was a great answer. Thank you. And also very um, insightful. Um, I thought, yeah, the, I think that her methodology of critical proximity is really interesting. I think I saw her talking about... Um, Donna Haraway's idea of like sitting with the trouble and how yeah. she's really like fascinated with that in terms of her her practice. I just think it's really like these embodied ways of knowing and um and also how that sort of sat- is saturated by like a multiplicity of knowledge frameworks. Yeah, well. and I guess it's also thinking about pointing towards how how knowledge is produced and what other kinds of truth can be understood that isn't just through looking at an archive. What other modes of um you know yeah through embodiment, I guess, what else can be understood about a subject rather than like knowing and seeing? 
I guess. Yeah, and and there's sort of this idea around sort of illegitimate forms of knowledge um, that Ikwe uses, um, or like looking at an other way of knowing. Um, I think in terms of like gesture and dance, as you sort of mentioned. Um, and yeah, I was kind of interested in these kind of this kind of tension between like fact and fiction and mythologies and multiplicities of narratives and. Yeah, I was just wondering, as like as a an experience of watching these films, how are these? Is there a clear um, hierarchy between them, or is it a very flattened sense of hierarchies between what is maybe deemed a more sort of legitimate um, form of knowledge? Yeah, completely. I think she's a total advocate for partiality, and maybe something that I was reading alongside researching her films and we spoke about I had a phone call with her but I didn't want to shoehorn it into this article but was thinking about Sadia Hartman's work around critical fabulation and the way that she works with the archive especially we spoke a lot about dance as well in our conversation but just to explain Sadia Hartman kind of thinks about um, the book that she published last year called Wayward Lies which is thinking about the Black life in the early 20th century as a radical experiment, um, one which kind of pushes against the dominant patriarchal white forces of the US. And she recovers a certain history by looking at administrative documents, by looking at diary entries and legal documents and photographs, kind of denigrated, kind of illegitimate forms of knowledge because they aren't sanctioned by kind of museums or, or canonized in the same way. And I kind of can see a certain... A reflection or kind of you know a rhythm with that within Onyeka's work by turning towards kind of minor sources you know the personal histories part you know subjective accounts as a way to retell a history that isn't within the um, kind of legitimate and the, the supposedly transparent sources of, of a museum or an archive because those because basically those museums that that they tell the history of a colonial project so what else, what other kind of narratives can be found? And so she's turning to her own personal history and the documents and traces of her family. And particularly in the names have changed, including my own, the truths have been altered. This is a really wonderful film, which is very confusing. You don't really know. It's very slippery between fact and fiction. Um, she creates a certain mythology of her own to retell her own homeland in Aaron Dizog. And it's um, has a really... Um, wonderfully elliptical way of telling itself. I became, when, in watching that film, it's very hard to distinguish what is truth and what isn't, what is a mythology and what is her family. And even in fact checking this article, I got it completely wrong and she had to kind of tell me how it really was because I, I, I as, as a viewer, it's hard to discern and I thought that was really imaginative. It's a really fantastic mm. film. And I think for me, is, is uh, for an artist who's trying to decolonize archives essentially I think through her work that one does it incredibly effectively and in a really imaginative and humorous way as well yes and you talk about um the role that the colonial film unit play within her work I know that she's taken videos um and used them sort of as collage collaged them against her um recordings of dancing and other gestures um could you maybe talk about what the colonial film unit actually was and its significance um, within this body of work. Totally. So the colonial film unit was essentially um, a state-sponsored uh, propaganda machine 
created by the British government and dispersed across the whole Commonwealth, across all countries that they were governing in the early 20th century. I guess when film was an emerging discipline as well, so it's kind of experimental form. And film units would be operated by British subjects, civil workers, I suppose, and they would go to Commonwealth countries to film the, the, their colonial subjects. They would film the people who were there um, and it would be very coded scenes that they would stage and the idea was to create kind of visual propaganda to send back to Britain to kind of create images of the Commonwealth and the lives that were part of uh, British rule I suppose to kind of further enforce the colonial project um, and that you know I guess it started the, the colonial film unit ran for quite a long time I mean from like the early 1920s to mid 1940s perhaps just before the I mean particularly before the end of Nigerian independence in Onyeka's kind of film and the way she's using their footage. But also at some point, Nigerian people joined the unit, so they would be more independent. They would also kind of continue the colonial film unit work, but, you know, operated by um, Nigerian people. And in, I guess towards the mid well, 1940s onward, maybe they were thinking more about education and became more pedagogical about healthcare. Um, safety, those kind of other forms of socialising, I suppose. It became a very mm. particular social project. Um, mm. But then I guess what's interesting, I think Onyeka, Onyeka picks up on, and which is why she uses dance so much, is that, you know, the way that um, African people were seen through the lens of the colonial gaze is often through, there's a lot of dancing. They filmed a lot of dance. So, you know, to see, if you think of, if you think of Africa in the early 20th century, you're probably thinking of people dancing on screen and that was you know so it's a very constructed gaze I guess and I think for Onyeka you know and she kind of tried as her as as a woman in you know 21st century trying to understand her past these are the images she's encountering to understand where she came from she wasn't born in Nigeria her parents were she was born in London but to get a sense of yourself you 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 can only to a certain extent go through these institutions to learn of your history mm. Yeah, and I think um, especially in terms of, uh, I think I was listening to an interview with her. She was, or um, a talk that she gave, maybe, and she was one of those tensions that she that she felt she encountered within within the archive was when she encountered these films of dance, which kind of incited like a feeling of joy within her. But then she felt sort of maybe uncomfortable at um, the way that they were being viewed or um, collected, and how these people are captured to be presented in a certain way. Yeah, completely. Because I think, you know, it's it's a very. <clears throat> I mean, I've I've felt it myself when we um, we spoke a lot about Pitt Rivers because I work in Oxford and she's part of her research was at Pitt Rivers, and I had an experience where I was looking at photographic archives and you just the objectifying gaze of photography and film from that period is just horrific and it's very hard to understand um, who the people are in these images because of the kind of the racist gaze that is capturing them. So I guess, um, and the dance is, yeah, I don't know. It's, where am I going with this? I think what's interesting is how they're seen as specimens, I suppose. That's mm. the purpose of them, is to keep them in their place as colonial subjects. And that's something that she is, I guess, humanising these people 
or kind of, you know, giving, you know, really calling her own place within this history through her own body, through the kind of sense of observing the images and then dancing in response to them as a way to present a kind of counter knowledge around Mm. what these images and gestures mean. So I think that's also important is, yeah, the role of gesture rather than dance and Mm. kind of interpreting them through her, observing her, the women in her family and how they talk to each other or watching Nollywood TV dramas and thinking about how they communicate and using what would, what are, what are contemporary gestures of Nigeria and how can that help her understand uh, a sense of heritage and identity, I think. So within the films, how does she bridge um, these historical documents or sort of moments with the contemporary, like as an experience of watching them? Um, yeah, what techniques does she sort of employ to bring those two together? I think it's a lot of, um, well, it's a combination of writing, I guess, is a big part of her practice, where she writes um, the kind of, I'm, I'm thinking about the names have changed particularly, I mean, where she's kind of, maybe for the first time she's using a narrative structure to pull various forms of imagery together. So she's kind of collaging uh, the colonial film unit footage alongside footage that she's filmed alongside um, video footage that she's edited together. So, and then that, and that is collectively uh, connected by her own writing. And that's either her voice, her diaries, diary accounts when she's shooting in Lagos, or it's this, this myth, myth mythology that she creates. Um, in earlier films, there's no dance, no palaver. It's this trilogy. It's a much more kind of maybe more experimental, less, She's trying things out in her, in um, her name in my mouth, which is the film, the, one of the first films that I saw. It's her using her mother's voice, particularly to kind of just to say names in Igbo, to kind of borrowing voices of other people, to give a soundtrack to colonial footage. I think to kind of update it or give it a sort of location for her in um, sitting on a man, which is also part of the No Don't No Dance No Palava trilogy. It's using collaboration a lot. She collaborates with dancers. She was invited dancers to watch um, the footage and to imagine what this act of sitting on a man might look like today. So uh, sitting on a man, these films particularly relate to the Abba Women's War, which um, was an uprising led by women against kind of tax collection in Nigeria. And the women would enact their forms of protest by essentially going to to uh, sing and dance outside kind of senior leaders' houses. So it's kind of kind of performative protest. And so she kind of invited dancers to think about that protest, what that might mean, and then respond. It's a call and response, really. Um, they perform almost in front of the images, and that's what she films as kind of a documentary of dance. So it's very different, many different tactics, really. Mm. And she discovered the Abba Women's War as a as an a as a historic event through I think it's through her uncle's autobiography or something. Yeah, Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, and she didn't really elaborate on that much more. But other than I guess when she first started on this body of work, she turned to her family and asked them. I guess, where am I from? You know, what, what is my ancestry? And my great uncle happened to happen to wrote an autobiography. And within it, he locates his date of birth around the time of the Abba Women's War. And she said that's the first time that she'd heard about it, was him like dating, yeah, how old he is based on this historical event. So um, 
I think I, I kind of like that. I like that anecdote because that really indicates mm. the way that she works. It's this very fluid blending of personal archive against this institutional state-sanctioned machine as well. Mm. And in her sort of, um, you, you mentioned earlier, um, when she's sort of in the archive, she writes these kind of diaristic responses that are sort of biographical or they're very um, sensual, like exploring her, like how she feels within that moment. Like how does that, um, how is that sort of felt or heard in, in, the, in the films? Like is she rereading these moments um, that she's written or... Is it communicated in a different way? Not, not, not really. Not that I could tell. She gave a lecture in Athens, and that's where she described um, going to Bristol, the Bristol archives of Empire. And she went with a friend. And then I think they were auditing some archives or editing some films together. And they had spent a long time working in a windowless room. And I think, you know, that work is very difficult physically anyway. Whether you're looking at this material or not, it's a real endurance test. And she described this kind of voidy wonderful anecdote where they had a break and they went to explore the building and they found an empty room and because they they had their friendship with her had been through dance and music and they just decided to just quite spontaneously break out into dance in this building and it's really great and she kind of recognizes that as a response she kind of recognized that this is the you know the somatic desire of my body was to respond in this way and so I think she's those moments I guess perhaps that um, point of recognition is most clearly seen in her films through so her inclusion of dance but also I mean in terms of her, her own experience of working in the archive she does think a lot about the black frame I think she talks a lot about you know watching the black box the kind of confined 4-3 ratio of these screens um, and kind of thinking about her own screen of the film as imitating that claustrophobic space maybe um, and something I noticed elsewhere in the films is she's always, not always, but she talks about the traces of dust in her fingers when you handle archives, you know, and they might not have been touched in a very long time. And she, and in the various instances, she tends to show her hands up to the screen and you can see the kind of dirt on her fingers. And so I think those kind of fleeting moments are her pointing towards the tactility of the archive, maybe her own physical presence within it. Um, and she kind of writes very beautifully about the smell, the taste of these documents when you open them up, um, what that kind of sensory encounter is with history in a really kind of very literal way, I think. And you mm. see that a lot as well in her name in my mouth, where she's looking through basically an inquiry into the Abba Women's War, and she has to open out this paper document. And, I mean, it's very kind of slow and intentional in how she's handling the material. So I think she's just kind of, subtly emphasizing that the these history is documented through paper that you can handle and touch I guess and that does leave some kind of trace whether that's a physical trace in your hands or some kind of embodied trace I guess and how you respond to it as well amazing um yeah and her most recent work that you talk about um no archive can restore you mm -hmm. from this year um she actually I think you talk about how this this is more focusing on sort of the architecture of the building of the um, Nigerian film unit building, um, and there's a kind of like a removal of her body within this within this later film. Um, but also interesting, like what you were just talking about, made me think of um, is the name taken from that film is after Juliet Singh's 2018 mm -hmm. book 
no archive will restore you which really looks at like um the archive of the body or the archive being within the body and these like traces that are almost like untraceable like an infinity of tra- traces which is like a Gramscian quote mm. um but yeah maybe we could talk about that final film as well or most recent film not final film sorry um yeah yeah I mean it's a really surprising film it's, it's, it's a lot shorter it's only five minutes long I think um I would say the production values are much higher in that film I mean by that I mean it's she's obviously operating on a different scale she's obviously working with the crew maybe not for the first time but it's a very meditative study of architecture really and her body doesn't appear in it and so I think she is shifting her focus onto other forms of traces I guess of colonialism thinking about the physical traces it leaves um, and that she shot it on location in Lagos. So she went specifically uh, as a research trip to find it's a legacy of, of the um, colonial film unit. The Nigerian film unit is like the, the what came subsequently to it um, mm. before before Nigeria gained independence. And so I spoke to Onyeka on the phone about this film and she said it, it's really surprising in Lagos because that building sits almost directly opposite its contemporary version, like another national archive. But this building sits completely derelict. No one wants to go in it. There isn't like any interest locally in, into this building and its contents. And that's kind of, I guess, for her, that's particularly interesting because it still has this archive in that could be kind of, could be restored, but definitely won't be. Although, you know, it holds kind of this idea of lost treasures, but there is no interest in finding it. There is no facilities to kind of rescue them. And so the film itself is this really beautiful kind of floating camera that kind of navigates the empty building. And you almost, I describe it, the the camera kind of arrives on empty rooms as, as if you're kind of negotiating a scene of a crime. The whole, all the films are left in a total state of disarray. There's like stacked cans of films are kind of rusting and the films are spalling out of the cans onto the floor all this celluloid is rotting in the sun there's broken chairs so much dust so much um, piles and piles of paper it's really an archetypal image of an archive but what's beautiful really is like how her the gaze of her camera doesn't disturb it it just kind of glides through and focuses in and you get an impression I guess of its contents and its history, but without ever really be, it being activated in the way that her other films really revisit and reproduce, um, or, or tr- not directly reproduce, but try to manipulate images in a way. This is much more documentary, perhaps, mm. I think. And, how, and um, you talk about how there's sort of um, soundscapes within that, within that film as well um how do they how do they sound what how do they operate within that yeah the sound design is really effective um they are mostly I guess kind of ambient sound that she's collected from the street from different situations you kind of get a sense of traffic noise from outside the building maybe there's bird sound there's um some recorded British very clipped British accents talking about Africa over the top um, there's kind of really subtle edits of her, like, or someone blowing as if like blowing the dust. So it's this really evocative um, experience. She describes it as the sonic shadows of the archive, which is a really beautiful mm. way to, to talk about it. Um, yeah, but she said, I think she's getting more interested in sound because of her collaboration with the Black Obsidian Sound System. Um, yeah. She's thinking about you know, I think she works with the sound designer and think about how does sound operate in relation to these images 
and I she I don't I'm not entirely sure what the next film will be the one that she's working on um she was shooting a few weeks ago for KW in Berlin but I think it's moving more into this kind of architectural uh study of the legacies of these spaces because I think quite practically it's something I asked her about when we spoke on the phone was how do you manage how do you keep on returning to this material you know it's incredibly difficult to revisit mm. and there is this I mean, we spoke about the politics of reproduction really how do you how can you I think she manages it very well through this mode of critical proximity but you cannot reproduce these images without manipulating them in some way because otherwise you're reinscribing the trauma of it and I think she's probably reached a point where she's done with this the you know the the CFU kind of imagery it has to move on to something else as any artistic practice should you know it has to develop and kind of take on other interests and other visual languages I suppose yeah absolutely I think that's all we have time for I think that final film that you're referring to um, that's going to be shown in December um, online at and at the KW Institute of Contemporary Art in Berlin is going to going to be titled so called um yeah which yeah. is nice because i think it kind of alludes to the slippages of names names and naming mm. and things yeah. that are you know na- names uh the names have changed as being a title of a film so called names as being unreliable or things that um can't entirely be trusted or might be made up i kind of like that play the play with language in her film is really interesting and it often seems to come across in the titles so yeah i look forward to seeing where it goes Yeah, definitely, as do I. Well, thank you very much for chatting with me, Amy. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I would like to welcome my next guest onto the Art Monthly talk show. It's Frances Worrell Campbell. Frances is an artist, writer and historian, and they're here to talk with me today about their feature, The Pandemic Will Not Be Televised, in which they compare the banality of Channel 4's lockdown series, Grayson's Art Club, with the channel's bygone reputation of broadcasting innovative filmmaking, in particular, looking at Stuart Marshall's 1984 film, Bright Eyes. Francis, could you start by giving us an introduction as to what Grayson's Art Club is, and why does it, to quote yourself, reveal a programme that increases the yeah, claustrophobia um, thank you, Alex. and torpor um, of so confinement? Grayson's Art Club was um, a series commissioned by Channel 4 of. Um, six masterclasses um, run by Grayson Perry and his wife Philippa out of um, Grayson's home studio uh, well studio um, not his home but a studio that's near his home in Islington um, and across the series Grayson the best way that I've described it to myself is a kind of um, adult art attack um, Grayson takes the viewer through um, a series of uh, artistic genres and tasks um, or themes. So from portraiture, which is the first um, the first episode theme, um, through to Britishness, which is the last one. And around those artistic genres or themes, the audience is encouraged to kind of make along with Grayson as he produces a piece of art and also showcases audience submissions and the works of professional artists, um, either alive or dead. Um, 
as a way of, um, I think the um, wording on the Channel 4 website is um, to do with um, kind of getting creative juices of the country flowing in a way that is um, kind of supposed to counter the the misery of lockdown, I think. And you... Um... You talk about um, the repeated structure of the show. You give quite a lovely sort of visual analysis of um, how the episodes are constructed. Um, And you also talk about how it contributes to this strange pace. And you say, like our bodies, the program is locked down. Um, What is this structure exactly and how does it sort of fail? The format of the show is quite, I was going to say quite strange, but it's actually really familiar um as a format of lockdown television i suppose things from have i got news for you to gardener's world have kind of all been using this strange um collage type format of home videos either from the presenters themselves or from audience um, submissions which are really a cut and spliced together to pad out the length of a, a half hour show or um, the Grayson's Art Club, it's it's even longer than that. Um, so you have these really strange short segments of footage that are um, extended across the whole show to spliced up with um, older footage or from previous shows or audience submissions, even Zoom calls with celebrities. And it's very rigid and fast-paced in the way that it moves on. But also visually, um, what I found striking was this kind of collapsing of screens, the iPhones um, or other smartphones that people are recording on in their homes being um, almost like this uh, one-armed bandit screen, of these kind of three columns of of footage um, that just sort of, slide into each other and really don't give that much space for any kind of creativity I think that um instead of opening up the country's creativity I felt it was more closing it down in this really rigid um grid of images yeah I I personally I only watched the first episode sort of in preparation for our conversation um I didn't watch it during lockdown and it just made me think of, it just made me think of um, like an iPhone advert, the whole, just like the way those screens and that that is like an an iPhone advert trope trope anyway. Um, You also talk about how um, Grayson's Art Club paints a very narrow picture of the UK. Um, In what way is the UK depicted in the show? So I think one thing that I found really interesting and perhaps also relates a lot to the kind of representation that I talk about in Stuart Marshall's um, Bright Eyes is how there's a a very particular picture of what the UK um, was like under lockdown. The idea that everyone in the show is at home, um, kind of as a function of how the program was made anyway that people are only being filmed at home so even there's a segment with an NHS uh nurse I think who um 
clearly is not working from home, but the implication of filming her at home and everyone else also being confined in the program to their houses paints a picture of a kind of Britain under home arrest, but in a in a more positive sense. It's not a, a punishment necessarily, um, but a, a, there's a sense of a strange kind of double think in which community is expressed verbally, but really not visually. And there's no, um, yeah, everyone that's kind of the the key workers, this rhetoric is very other. It's a sense of these people aren't visible on screen. And when they are, it's not in that capacity. You could kind of be forgiven for thinking that everybody in the UK was just at home that entire time. Um, and so it's, yeah, kind of with that also comes a lot of um, class and racial dynamics, particularly, um, I mean, the kind of amount, the amount of space and time that Grayson Perry has on his hands. And I mean, this is, I guess, a wider problem with um, the the art world and you know who who the gatekeeping and who gets to be an artist and how much resources you how many resources you need um for that to even be possible um but it's a very kind of ghostly great britain and also just the yeah the rhetoric of this great nation also is so present yeah, interesting that you mention about um, him having time because that's actually something I noted down when he goes to visit or there's that home video of Chantelle Joffe in her lovely studio at, studio at home and she's talking how it's amazing because time to yeah. her now feels end. Working from home is amazing because time feels endless. And yeah, that really speaks to a very... Yes. Um, yeah, there's it's a, a luxury of a A real sense of... The viewer also having that endless time to create, not having to go to work, having um, the uh, yeah. There's uh, for me, it's a sense. I kind of think of it in the same way as and sort of nineteenth century like leisured classes who are able to sit and do needlework or paint watercolors all day. And I heard a lot of people discuss um, the idea or some some people that I knew whose lives seemed to have reverted to that state of two centuries ago. Um, but without kind of realising, I think, the privilege of boredom um, or how... Mm. Yeah, everyone's experiences weren't equal and weren't the same despite there being a narrative of sameness kind of one day into the next but also kind of my day and your day being exactly the same also it adds to I feel like within that first episode that's all I can go off from what I've personally watched but um Grayson Perry talks he urges us to make time for art because it's good for you and it kind of it's good for your mental health and like I'm not um denying the the benefits and importance of creativity but it kind of made me 
think about this sort of like neoliberal ideology of self-improvement and constantly producing and being productive and also this like privatizing the issue of mental health onto an individualized body rather than um, sort of opening it out as a political issue. Um, yeah, yeah, it just, yeah. It, it really made me think of that. Um, and actually, you you also talk about um, in your article how um, the, the uh, sorry, Grayson's Art Club swallows the message of the government, which is the responsibility for the health of the nation falls on the individual. And yeah, it'd be great to hear maybe more your thoughts on how. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring up the mental health myth. aspect. Also, I hadn't thought so much about that. Um, but there is that strange intersection of privatization in that sphere also. For me, Grayson's Art Club was um, really indicative of, again, I'm perhaps going to use the, the same Orwellian phrase of doublethink, of the government's message of both community and a sense of mm. all being in this together. But really, when it comes down to it, the actual logistics of living through the pandemic were so individualized and without the intervention of kind of mutual aid groups and grassroots work towards a community um there really wasn't any meaningful sense beyond words that people were in this together no redistribution of resources no aid beyond what was provided within or from people's own initiative um and Grayson's art club I just felt kind of really evocatively visualized that in its um uh, the the message of being all together and all together watching this all together in having time to make art um but then actually no one ever being in the same room as anyone else except for um Philippa and Grayson everyone always being behind a screen um multiplying across these screens on on the viewer's own tv or laptop screen um it felt very estranged whilst also really effortfully proclaiming this idea of community um yeah a case of the lady doth protest too much I think yeah and it's interesting also thinking about um like the messages from the government again individualizing Mm -hmm. this responsibility with like slogans like the control the virus which is just crazy but also I was thinking about those photos that became like viral and were spreading across social media of people doing like mass gatherings in parks or in pubs or whatever the laws had changed to then allow them to do throughout the process of the whole uh, changing situation of lockdown um and yeah, I just think there's like an interesting kind of contrast between maybe that like level of judgment or yeah, like people maybe making those statements from being inside the home um, as visualized. Yeah, it's very political who gets to gather and where. I'm just thinking about the recent government mm. ruling about no more than six people. Um, yeah, with the, no wait, how, is, how did they word it? No more than six people and a social gathering, but 
other, I presume, like workplaces um, don't count and things like that, who, um, yeah, mm. a real sense of um, the, yeah, I think one thing that was really interesting, or at least I thought a lot about at the beginning of lockdown was how the home had become really so people that were interested in I don't know um for example like Sophie Lewis and family abolition and other people writing about I mean Sophie Lewis actually wrote really well on the issue of domestic violence in the home as not a refuge but this message of it being a refuge and I found it really hard to disentangle the real problems and the home as a really unsafe space for a lot of people with the really strong like legislation that one should be as much as possible in the home and that was the like quote unquote safest place to be um but this kind of I think sense that one could have more imagination and could think of other realms and communities and organizations of people that could be as protective and as um I suppose safe from the virus without being a domestic dwelling or a um heteronormative family situation which I feel was implicit in this language of stay at home stay within this very rigid set of social structures um which really just favored um yeah the bourgeois heteronormative household um and yeah something something more creative perhaps that channel four could suggest that we put our time to is thinking how we how we could live outside of those structures and how we could set up other networks that could provide a refuge yeah really interesting um another concept well, the concept that you bring into the article is this idea of yeah. flow that was developed by um, Raymond Williams in his 1974 book, um, Television, Technology and Cultural Form. Um, could you maybe explain a little bit about what it is and how does it relate to TV broadcasting today? Um, specifically, how does it yeah, connect so, with Grayson's um, Art Club? I might actually just get the article up so I don't misrepresent um, what uh um what Raymond Williams yeah, says I don't really want to do this blind um uh yeah so Raymond Williams's flow um is I suppose a way to describe how um the television television schedule is put together in such a way that the programs um and the adverts create a really um total experience a durational experience of watching in which the viewer is not um able to perhaps divide off the viewing experience into discrete moments but really is pulled inward and also along in this um kind of torrent of content that uh you know 
both, both, I mean, he's writing in an American context um, where I suppose advert, you know, commercial TV was much more um, prevalent and also uh, more intense. So both the shows themselves will be really chopped up into small pieces, adverts inserted in, but then each segment is kind of indistinguishable from the next in that kind of onward movement. Um, and I suppose the whole idea of flow is that it keeps the viewer inside it. It doesn't encourage you to change the channel or for you to be uncomfortable or to have to move on or, um, or kind of alter or cut off your viewing experience in any way. Um, in Grayson's art club I found the concept really instrumental even though it is outdated and I think particularly with the way that we view um, television much more off of television screens themselves um, and more I suppose on demand services or even you know cut up further into content for social media or YouTube clips or really different watching experiences but I felt that um this idea of a of a kind of durational watching experience that was cut up into small segments um was kind of if you think of it in Raymond Williams's concept of a whole evening of watching being within this flow it felt like Grayson's art club had condensed that evening into a into a half hour 45 minute show in which these short segments just rolled on from each other and didn't encourage any stoppage for any reflection um ironically any chance for the viewer to be creative outside for just watching what was going on um and had a really I think in that kind of folding inwards or that concertinaing inwards of that concept of flow I yeah, watching it felt very claustrophobic and even tighter and more. Um, I suppose flow has a kind of lethargy to it, a sense of you know, being on the sofa the whole evening watching TV, and this had a strange, like frenetic energy to the flow, which was yeah, just felt really like compressed um, and really quite strange. Sorry, I think it just cut out a little bit there. Um, I'm just going to, no, it's all right. I'm just going to note the time. Um, so, so you compare Grayson's Art Club with Channel 4's arts broadcasting in the 80s, um, and you quote mm-hmm. Michael Kirsto, Channel 4's first commissioning editor for the arts, uh, who says, our program aims to uncover and discover art, to let art shape television and not vice versa um what was their programming like then yeah I think channel 4 is really interesting in how much of a shift it's and both it's arts programming but it's programming more general kind of underwent in a very short space of time as well um at the moment that Michael Kirsto is speaking um it's really channel 4's a really interesting place for artists who are working in moving image. Um, kind of unlike the BBC or ITV, they're really allowing artists moving image to be presented 
without justification and in and of itself. So there are several series like um, Dada Rama, uh, Ghost in the Machine, and then The Eleventh Hour, which is um, uh, what Stuart Marshall's Bright Eyes was kind of commissioned for and, and part of, which all um, provided platforms for these new commissions to exist and be seen by the viewer as as they were not um not spliced up into documentaries about the artist or um made into um other other content um but really yeah as as michael kirster says not um descending over art but letting that the artist's moving image have its own space and kind of opening up that space for it to exist on the channel. Um, but yeah, as kind of the um, the nineties wore on, I suppose the the channel seemed to really change um, into more a more populist approach to programming. Um, more um, I suppose a kind of interest in scandal also try and think of um, I mean I'm sure everyone is sort of familiar with the kinds of documentaries that Channel 4 is popular for now and it's kind of reality TV offering and um, yeah actually a really a big change in also its attitude to um, queer people on television um, and yeah Stuart Marshall's uh, Bright Eyes is really sharp in how it unpicks the representation around homosexuality and um, the the uh, yeah really um, manages to devastate this homophobic narrative um that links uh gay sexuality to sickness um but just thinking of recent more sensationalist programming that channel 4 has um done specifically around um i mean more recently i suppose around um trans people and specifically trans children uh yeah it's really kind of polar opposite in how it mobilizes its own platform and and the representation that it kind of circulates yeah so how how does uh, Marshall challenge these sort of prevalent homophobic representations um, of gay men that were sort of exacerbated within mainstream media in the 80s and I thought it was interesting actually in in bright eyes they sort of conf- they were talking about how com- homosexuality is conflated with criminality or it's a sign yeah, to some um, sort of personal I think one moral thing failing Stuart Marshall does really well is to set up this um this association with um visual images and truth uh but set so kind of set that up from the context of um first still photography and then moving image and to really 
say that this relationship is a historically contingent one, that you see something in a photograph or in a film, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. I think that already starts to dissolve the media imaging or visual visualization of um of the homophobic visualization of people with AIDS where um these you know often gay men are presented as um as sick and as criminal within these conventions of or kind of very strikingly from from watching the documentary it's obvious um strikingly within the conventions of Victorian depictions of criminality, particularly um, sexual deviancy, and really showing the, I suppose two things, really showing the historical lineage of that that really undercuts any objective truth to those representations, whilst also breaking apart any link between photographic imagery and reality so really um yeah drives apart this narrative a kind of two it's like a two-pronged attack on this um media imagery and out of interest do you know how um the audiences um, at the time responded to this is actually something the, i'm not so film. sure about um i think i remember reading one thing where there was well definitely there was outcry in the um more generally about channel 4's um desire to give queer people space to represent themselves um and one of the, i suppose one of the reasons that the 11th hour um uh programming was so late also was to try and avoid the kind of mary whitehouse um you know, letters that the channel would get saying, oh, my children shouldn't be exposed to this kind of thing on television. Um, and so, yeah, there was the idea that if we put it on um, late enough, then we won't have to deal with those. Or that can be a defence against that kind of moralis- moralism. Um, but I'm not sure of more specific responses to Bright Eyes. I think that, yeah, kind of alongside that, there was definitely a positive reception of it from um uh queer people in britain particularly people living with aids who really didn't see that uh that image of themselves or of people they knew um at all in the media so i think for a lot of people it was very affirming and there's definitely still a lot of fondness for the piece now when i was telling people that i was writing about it um a lot of people had really positive things to say about how not just about how I don't know the aesthetic value but a really personal response to how it made them feel both at the time and then also now it's great no, thank you for thank you for having today. me thank you so much for talking with me Francis thank you so much to my two delightful guests Amy Budd and Francis Worrell Campbell and thank you to everyone for tuning in to the September edition of the Art Monthly Talk Show. Until next time.